there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello and you're very welcome to Your Politics Podcast from RT News. I'm Paul Cunningham. Joining me today we have RT's political correspondent Micheál Lehan and our political guest is Paul Murphy of People Before Profit. Um, Paul, I was thinking of Otto von Bismarck when I was coming down to this particular podcast because he talked Not about... really though. <laughs> I was, because kind of <laughs> he talked about politics being the art of the possible and who, I'd say even Otto's rotating in his old coffin there as he thought of the unity between the rural independent group and people before profit. Never could you get two entities as far apart and yet tactically you came together like a marriage. Were you sitting down today talking with Danny Healy Ray and Matty McGrath about the possibilities now of this new political vanguard? I wasn't. Um, I mean, in, in the end, actually, I think effectively the entire opposition stood yeah. up to cause an abundance to call a vote. of numbers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so you, so for anyone listening, you need to get 10 people to stand up to call a vote in circumstances where there might be a question about whether there'd be enough people. But at lunchtime um, yesterday, the, we didn't know about Shinsu's right. position. So people before so, Profit announced at clearly, lunchtime that exactly. you were prepared to move so, in with the rural independent group. Well, not, not at all to support their position. I mean, they, they've got a position, you know, effectively. They're in favour of the deal that the government did. They were opposed to the government's motion to the, on the Sinn Féin motion hospital. on the National Maternity Hospital. Um, in, in a way, they took a more honest position than the government because the government defends its own deal, but yet abstained on the Sinn Féin motion, which effectively opposes the government's deal that was done with um, the St. Vincent Healthcare Group. Um, but we, we stood up to facilitate a vote happening. Because, one, we wanted the motion to pass. Actually, the motion has passed now. That's a weapon in the hands of the campaign to say, well, look, Fadal has stated we want a fully public hospital on public land and so on. Just as you're speaking, move up another little bit. Thank you very much. No problem. Um, uh, but But either way, we wanted a vote to actually take place, where if you're not going to support it, we'll then do so on the record where people can can see it. Um, So it's a basic democratic issue. um, And obviously the consequence of it is it is that then two Green TDs uh, voted in favour of the motion and yeah. then lost the, the whip as but a is it, I mean, sometimes um, PBP talks about principle, high mm-hmm. principle. And, um, you know, was this really principled? Yeah, it's principled to say that there should be votes in the doll in these things. I mean, the government operates such an opportunistic policy in relation to motions. It is quite scandalous. Like, they often allow motions to pass that they fundamentally disagree with, that they're doing the opposite of. They had the intention of doing this this time around, they yeah. didn't put a counter motion, even though they'd done the very opposite in the day. But, you know, it's just the height of cynicism. But so I think to draw that out and to say, let's have a vote on the record of the doll is, is a positive thing. Could put it another thing. way? I mean, like, it was Sinn Féin who said that they were going to put down a private member's motion. You were having a discussion a day after the cabinet had taken a decision. Mm-hmm. So what were you asking the government to do stuff when they'd already taken a decision that they weren't going to do what you were asking them to do? Well, Sinn Féin would have put the motion, uh, they would have had to submit it at the latest, kind of the Thursday or Friday yeah. beforehand. So they're trying to add pressure on the government not to go ahead with the decision. Obviously, we had quite a successful protest last Saturday outside the doll. People saying, don't go ahead uh, with this. So... It's a shame that the government decided to preempt the decision of the doll um, to go against, I think, majority of public opinion. 
and to do this uh, deal with uh, a private company um, set up by a religious charity. We will come to that issue, but just I'm just wondering about the, the private members' bills themselves. I mean, there was a time, um, you're probably too young to remember this, Paul, but back in 1989, Brendan Howland was bringing a private members' bill in relation to people with haemophilia. He wanted to set up a £400,000 fund to assist people who had become infected with HIV and hepatitis C as a result of contaminated blood products given by the blood bank. And I think the vote was um, 72 in favour, 69 against. And Charlie Hawhey came off a plane from Japan. They'd lost a PMB. Mm. The integrity of the government was in question and he called a general election. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was probably around end of Kenny's time where this issue of a government saying, well, a private member's, not explicitly, but a private member's bill, you know, it's not, not that much. It. You can let it yeah. go through. You know, they've had their say and now we move on. Um, do you think to a certain extent then, as we looked at what happened, that private members' bill have lost their power, that they've lost, like for you as a member of the opposition, something that you can really use. Yes, they, they have very consciously devalued private members' motions in particular. So TDs can use, you can either put a motion, which is uh, in effect an expression of the wish of the doll, or you can put a bill which actually starts the process of passing laws. Um, but with motions in particular, they have just taken the attitude that they were getting too much grief from voting against things that they disagreed with, the pictures would go up online of how they voted, people would be outraged, and they decided, you know what, we just avoid that, we just won't vote against these. And I think the key one there was early in the lifetime of this government, wasn't it, around student nurses' pay. Yeah. And the the reaction to that lasted several days. That's right. Uh, across all media and all types of forum. And a decision seemed to have been made. And it, di- it did work, the decision to just mm-hmm. park things and let it sit there up until last night mm-hmm. uh, when that unlikely alliance uh, signaled an end, I think, to that particular approach now, which is all about it. I know the official response is that it's about government would don't have to act because they've taken a decision. decision but it was yeah. clearly just about taking the political tension out of that motion and not not applying more pressure on those green TDs uh, who were going to act either way. Yeah, Just on, on the issue of the um, National Maternity Hospital, we have heard from people before profit that the fight goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, is your fight going to have to change insofar as that's the question of the land and the question of what is appropriate procedures in the hospital is over? I mean, they've clearly done the deal now. Um, they've made all these assurances. Um, we don't believe that they are legally watertight assur- assurances as the Taoiseach just repeated and repeated to try and make it a fact. Um, obviously, we hope that they are. We hope that there aren't any problems in terms of the provision of services for women's health care at the National Maternity Hospital. Um, but we fear that there will be in the future. We fear that in the future, a government will be standing up and saying, oh, we're sorry about this uh, mistake that was made. I, I suppose for us, we, we see this as part of the battle to separate church and state, full separation, churches out of education fully, churches out of healthcare uh, fully, and the struggle around all of those things definitely uh, continues. And what do you make of um, when the Rural Independent Group um, uh, members were speaking in the Doyle Chamber? Uh, on several occasions, they spoke about the political discourse was filled with anti-Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a recognition that on the one hand, there were huge problems, but on the other hand, much good had come from um, religious. And they mentioned people like Sister Stan and saying that there wasn't a balanced picture being given. What would your response to that be? Yeah, I I fundamentally disagree. Uh, I mean, you know, you you look at the constitution of the St. Vincent's Healthcare Group and the first line reference to the mission of Mary Aikenhead. Mary Aikenhead was the founder of the Sisters of Charity. They were responsible for running Madeleine Laundries, which incarcerated 
tens of thousands of women. Like, I, I, I think the idea that that mission would in any way inform the operation of a national publicly owned maternity hospital is, you know, really offensive. Um, and I think the majority of people feel that way. And, and so we are genuinely for a secular society. And there's two parts of a secular society. One is that the church should have no influence in terms of the state. But the other is that, that the state should absolutely leave full space for everybody to practice whatever religion they want without any interference by the state. And we mean both sides of that question. We're not attempting to ram, you know, atheism down people's throats or whatever, but we don't think it's appropriate that, for example, the Catholic Church still controls over 90% of primary schools in, in this state, um, the influence that they have in terms of hospitals. Like, this isn't over. You know, you look at the Angelus on RTE, you look at the fact that we, we say a prayer. There's a, a prayer said at the opening of every doll session. You know, that doesn't make sense in our opinion. Um, just on the National Maternity Hospital, um, deal done, time to move on and we're not going to hear about it unless there's a run over on building or something like that. Is that the way it's going to go? Yeah, I think there seems to be an attempt to speed up the tendering procedures which could take up to two years it'd be interesting to see how that develops and then you would think the political focus turns to the building and uh, inevitable uh, probably well not inevitable but uh, judging by past uh, building projects uh, <laughs> delays that could happen there I mean no one was being very specific on when the, the building might actually be built yeah uh, but I suppose by looking ahead to the government in the few months ahead I mean there is undoubtedly despite the fact that the place is fairly serene it's very relaxed around here a lot of people saying it's no big deal what happened last night given that the two green TDs will probably stay closely aligned with government and could be back in six months there is a greater pressure on government facing in to what politically looks like perhaps its most challenging environment when you look at the economy and you look at the the cost of living and you hear about cabinet discussions for the first time really talking now about deficits and about money shortages. So there's a storm coming and there's a storm coming minus two TDs and of course it's minus four if you put in Mark McSharry and Owen Murphy who've left since the day the government was formed. Do you think that um, your colleague uh, Mick Barry was over-egging it when he was talking about this wafer-thin majority and the government was in trouble because it would appear if you're looking at the committee while the two Green TDs Nasa Harrigan uh, and um, Patrick Costello have been put outside the parliamentary party mm. they are still in the committees who was um, open to Eamon Ryan to move them out of that. Um, so that would suggest that they're going to remain pretty close to the government. And I think, you know, Mark McSharry, in most of his votes, he's actually also sort of voting with the government. So they're still pretty much in the driving seat. I, I think the point that Mio made about context is important. I mean, if we were going into a period of kind of quiet, where the government will be able to grant demands to various people protesting and movements and so on, then, OK, maybe everything will be will be fine. But it looks like we're heading into a period on a, on a world scale of stagflation with stagnation in the economy combined with, you know, levels of inflation unseen, certainly in my lifetime. Um, and I think that means that the budget, for example, is going to be quite contentious. Um, people want more to be done in terms of the cost of living crisis. Um, and so... When you have a government with a formal majority of one, it's true that they can rely on some others. I mean, there's some independents who vote very consistently with the government and who maybe, if other people were kind of off the pitch, maybe would even come into the government on a more formal basis. Um, but they, they are 
you know, they do have a very small majority at this stage, so it yeah. does make them a lot more vulnerable. I think there's, there's one other point in that. If you look at the environmental issues and mm -hmm. you look, at, think of the turf controversy yeah. a few weeks back and you look at what happened last night and even if it's been dealt with now and if that sanction is probably in line with what Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael were thinking, but there are some Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael backbenchers when it comes to the next crunch point around environmental issues who will inevitably say, well, there were two green TDs who didn't toe the line on a particular issue. So why should there be a burden on us? At least that discussion will start taking place and that will create another tension. Um, well, one of the tension uh, points is bound to be on the cost of living. There was a protest outside of the Doyle. Um, we are heading into the summer and then the Doyle is away and then budgetary cycle kicks in and the government has the chance to do something in October. So is it necessarily true that it's going to be such a pinpoint, after all, in political terms, not on individuals, but in political terms? I think it is clearly the largest political issue. It has been dominating the picture for the last number of months. We had a couple of weeks where the main focus was correctly on the National Maternity Hospital, but now I think it's likely that the attention will shift back to the cost of living crisis. It will dominate leaders' questions. It will dominate the private members' uh, business. Um, and I think the fact that people are under so much pressure means that you are likely to have an expression of that in terms of protests, movements. So we did protest today, which is the first protest of the Cost of Living Coalition. And it's a real coalition, people for profit, Sinn Féin, trade unionists, students' unions, retired staff associations, housing organisations, homeless organisations, coming together to say we need action in terms of energy prices, in terms of free public transport, in terms of uh, retrofitting, in terms of uh, for people on fixed income, social welfare payments, increases, etc., and wage increases, amongst other things. Um, and for us, certainly, the, the big thing we're building for is a protest on Saturday, the 18th of June, where we feel if we can get thousands, you know, many thousands of people out on that date, well, then it will indicate to others that, OK, something could be done here. You know, because I think that's a key turning point. For example, with the water charges, people at a certain point felt, OK, we could actually get a victory here. We could defeat them on this. It's worth my while coming to this protest. And you need to convince people of that rather than many people may think, ah, it's, it's too big of a problem. It's a global problem. There's nothing yeah. that could be done. But I, I think we, we could be hitting a turning point on that. The Tony study of Radker was um, sort of pointing an accusing finger at the opposition, saying that in many occasions you don't point out what the government has done. And I think the figure he had was $2.4 since the last budget, the budget itself, trying to assist people. You mentioned public transport. Fares came down by 20%. Mm -hmm. So they are making an effort. Do you think that's going to be, um, to a certain extent, much harder to recreate a water charges where there was a sense among the public at large this was just unfair? Um. I mean, it's a thing he often gives out about. Like, I think it's strange that he wants us to pat him on the back for doing X, Y and Z, you know. Clearly, we don't think he's doing enough, like, you know. And he gives out about it in a way like he's actually seriously offended that he thinks we should be doing that. Um, so I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't believe that. Um, I say, say, take the example of public transport. I, 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 it's genuinely a good thing that they've cut public transport. It's the first time since World War II that public transport fares have been cut. And you already see the impact. 50%. Exactly. You already yeah. see the impact of that in terms of people going on to public transport. But if we can do that, well, then why not do what's been done in 100, country, 100 cities around the world um, and have free public transport? It's not enough. You have to invest in actual frequency, in services, so that everybody across the country or most people across the country can benefit from it. But in terms of a measure that would impact on people's experience of the cost of living and simultaneously impact with the climate crisis. And we have to try and do both. We can't just forget about the climate crisis now and think about cost of living. 
it would have a big impact. I mean, transport is a number two emitting sector for Ireland after uh, agriculture. Yeah, I mean, you did mention in the Doyle today in the context of if you're going to try and track tackle the question of climate change you needed to come up with a new economic model as the model mm-hmm. that's currently constituted by its very nature is going to drive emissions and it's simply not going to be enough in the time that we have. Is there a country you can point to to say well there's an econo- uh, economic model which Ireland could try and replicate? I mean not I don't think there is a model a uh, country which has an ecosystem. So there's the real revolution right to do it but, first. But, like. but, but it, it is um, Cuba I don't is think the rural lines will be in on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Cuba is the country with the lowest um, number of CO2 emissions per uh, GDP in the developed world or in the semi-developed and developed world. It, is, it has the lowest impact, partly as a result of the sanctions, to be honest, yeah. that they're forced to reuse uh, items. They're, they don't have the kind of throwaway culture. You know, Cuba isn't our model. Um, you don't have a genuinely democratic society in in Cuba. Lots but you get a tiny glimpse there as well. Mm-hmm. Lots of prisoners of conscience there. Absolutely, and all the rest of it. absolutely. Yeah. It, it isn't our, our model. Um, but you get a tiny glimpse of if you organise society not on the basis of private production for profit, but instead on the basis of economic planning, public ownership. In our opinion, you know, genuinely democratic public ownership. That's the only way, in my opinion, that we will be able to turn around the entire world economy in the time frame that we have to avoid the absolute catastrophe that we're facing in terms yeah. of climate change and in terms of biodiversity crisis. Is that not neat, though? You're, you're, you're using your own uh, philosophy uh, in the midst of the, the climate change crisis and says you have to, it's the only thing that can work. But I don't see any evidence that capitalism is working. I mean, what we have is report after report from scientists saying we're in a disaster, we're in a worse disaster. We have politicians then saying, oh, it's a terrible disaster. We're going to keep 1.5 alive. But they don't do it. Repeatedly, they don't do it. And it's because the decisions that are made about production are made on the basis of profit. You know, like you look at the big oil uh, and gas companies, the fossil fuel companies, they're literally sitting on trillions dollars, trillions of dollars worth of fossil fuels under the ground. Uh, it's about six trillion. If they burn those, we're all doomed. But their share price depends on them being able to burn. They're built into their profits. And so we have to say, no, the interests of society should take precedence over the interests of, of big oil. Um, already, we have enough investment in fossil fuel infrastructure to go beyond the 1.5 degrees. We can't have more investment in fossil fuel infrastructure, but that's what's happening. Yeah. And it, we just don't have time for this. It does strike me, like I think it was Oshin Cochrane who was pointing out that the phrases which are now being used by the UN Secretary General in the context of climate change, calling leaders liars, mm-hmm. um, like mm-hmm. really strong language like that, is something that um, environmental campaigners would have hesitated using mm-hmm. 15 years ago on the basis of the fear that they'd be sort of maligned as a result of it, but they're now yeah. actually seeing that happening now. It, it, it is, in political terms, a unique thing. I've never seen something like this at the moment. People who are follow the science of this know that, like, we're in just extreme crisis. You know, it is like that that film, Don't Look Up. You know, we are just, we're, we're very, very close to being beyond the point of return in terms of 1.5 degrees, extremely close. Yeah. And the whole world just continues. Like, I sit here in debates all the time and you hear people half denying climate change or the government people saying, well, it's real, but we have to be careful. Just, there's just the, the, the gap between what the science says and what the politician says. Is, is say It's just is so great that I think people like that, you know, who, who weren't previously seeing themselves as activists, lots of scientists, there were scientists rebellion a couple of weeks ago, are deciding we just need to do something. We have to try and 
Yeah. You know, um, Listen, one thing we'd like to try and do in the podcast is to pitch forward and see what's coming up next week. Um, this, you know, like the National Maternity Hospital has just dominated everything. Next week, what are you looking forward to in the context of Leinster House? Yeah, so we have a private members time next Wednesday, which we're using to put forward a motion in support of the medical scientists uh, strike. People may have seen they were on strike this Wednesday. We raised it as in leaders' questions to be on strike again if it's not settled or if there aren't serious negotiations next Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, effectively, the, the central issue there is an issue of pay parity, where it was agreed back in 2001 by an expert group and then by the HSE and the Department of Health that they should have parity with biochemists who do a very similar job to them. You know, these medical scientists, they're the people who do the COVID test, the blood test, the urine test, the stool samples, they do it all. Um, but they're significantly underpaid, significantly understaffed. One in five positions are vacant as a result of the underinvestment, the pressure, the low wages. Um, so we'll have a motion supporting those uh, workers. But isn't it the case that, um, you know, the, the position of the HSEs is that it's going to break a pay deal that they have. So it's going to, if they afford uh, more resources to one, it's going to cause not, have knock-on effects and therefore they, their hands are tied. In, in this case, though, I mean, they signed up to a report now 21 years ago um, accepting that there should be pay parity with the, the biochemists. Obviously, the cost of living crisis adds extra pressure to that, where, look, it's agreed formally that these people should get an 8% pay rise. You have inflation now at almost 8%. And so people are experiencing, you know, real, in real terms, uh, pay losses. Um, and we're trying to build pressure on the government to say that they should they should be conceding. What about you, Michal? What's coming up? That's well, I think one of the next big things that's coming up, if it's not next week, it's the week after, is the MICA uh, redress mm. legislation, which has to go to Cabinet. And of course, make it through the doll before the summer. Then, so that That's is gone going to be, quiet for it's a while. Quiet, but it's it's going to come back, and it'll be back within ten days or just just over that. And it is contentious, and there is a kind of an attempt by well, a suggestion by government that it shouldn't go through pre-legislative scrutiny to try and move it quicker, so it can be enacted by summer. That's likely to be opposi- uh, resisted by the opposition. So. On many levels, this is going to be an interesting next 10 to 12 days on this one. Yeah, given that we saw from Donegal, we had Joe McHugh, the Fine Gael TD, announcing yeah. that he wasn't going to stand again. I mean, it does have political ramifications for the government. Huge this political one. ramifications. And it's not just Donegal now as well. There are places like Clare and an expanding number of counties, given that there is an expanding number of substances uh, within those bricks and blocks around the country. So this, this could be much wider. Would some of your um, people who vote for you sort of have a problem that yet again the state is going to have to hand out a wad of cash to people whose homes are nine times the size of them when they're living in a very small square meterage in Tala saying, what on earth am I having to pay for this? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I spoke at the very large protests outside Customs House and I made precisely this point that there is an attempt to kind of divide and rule ordinary people. But I, I don't think people fall for that. I mean, I speak to in Tala or... Rathfarnham or in Temple Oak, have sympathy for these people who, like, they didn't know. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The government failed to regulate and then you had whatever happened in terms of uh, that these contractors and so on ended up um, building with um, substandard yeah. blocks. Um, it's not the fault of the ordinary people. Um, this is These are their homes um, and the idea that they shouldn't be laden for the cost. And obviously you had similar issues in the past in Dublin in terms of uh, pyrite. So I, I think there's very broad support for um, people affected by MICA. Um, one other one, there's, um, you're going to be debating journalistic safety. Yeah, so this is in the context of the murder of um, Shireen Abu Akleh, the Palestinian journalist in um, in Janine, last 
week and then the attack on the funeral and also the murder of the Irish journalist in Ukraine by Russian forces. Um, so yeah, I think we, I presume others also on the business committee pushed for to have a debate about it. Um, we were pushing to have it the week gone, but Simon Coveney was due to be away and said he'd like to make a statement and so on. So and what do you think of week. the Irish position? I mean, like I saw that it was um, Sinn Féin's Chris Andrews uh, was very critical of the Irish government that they hadn't done enough, particularly in the context of Palestine. Mm-hmm. And um, the Taoiseach Micheál Martin really came back at him saying in the context of the European 27, Ireland is one of the foremost um, mm-hmm. when it comes to trying to push back against this type of, of thing, that the Irish position is particularly clear. Um, so where do you stand on that? Well, it's true that in words, the Irish government is a lot better than the vast majority of European governments in criticising Israel and in you know, expressing sympathy with the Palestinian people. The problem is when it comes to actions. I mean, I had an oral question this morning with the Taunus study over Edgar about the fact that the IDA has employed a business development officer in, in Israel. And I said, how are we doing this on the one hand? On the other hand, you know, Amnesty International is condemning Israel as an apartheid state very comprehensively. You have the murder of Shireen Abu Akhla. You have the attack on her funeral. And then you have all this condemnation. Like, why are we going ahead with things like that? Surely you have to back your words up with some form of action. I mean, a very minimal action would be to say, OK, we, we stop the development of the IDA in, in Israel. This isn't um, what we should be pursuing. Yeah, I just don't see that happening. No, and that's the problem is that, like, it's all very well to give words of criticism and so on. It's better than than nothing, but it's not worth a whole lot if they aren't willing to back it up with action. And the same in terms of the Occupied Territories Bill, um, whereby they're out to block that. They don't want that to go through um, because fundamentally, while they want to make criticism in words, they don't want to break too substantially with the position of the US and the position in the main of the EU in terms of being very close and supportive of I suppose Israel. The, part of the argument is that um, obviously we could talk for another two hours on this particular one, but just a, as a last point, that in diplomatic terms, in the same way that the Irish government is saying that the Russian ambassador and some staff should remain in Dublin, mm-hmm. that what you need to do is to keep open relations, you need to keep open channels, and in that you're also keeping over uh, keeping over some sort of engagement between the two countries. That's the right and appropriate thing to do. Sure, but even take the example of the IDA. I mean, this is an expansion of the IDA. This is the development of a position that never existed previously this isn't even diplomatic relations do you know what i mean but but yes they're going further in those things and that's like how the eu in general treats israel and when i was a member of the european parliament it was clear that you know israel has very preferential treatment is treated almost as part of the european market Um, it basically has full access Um, so it's not like just oh just the normal relations that we have it's it's promoted even higher levels of engagement and so on and so the actions and the oppression of the Palestinians don't have any consequences. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that when I speak to Israelis, they've got a very different view of Ireland. It isn't that they're some great friends at all. It's the opposite, that they um, continuously, um, you know, are not even-handed, that they are pro-Palestinian. And that's the their view of the Irish government state. So it seems interesting that the Irish government is caught between the two, between an opposition, which says you're sort of too close to Israel, and from Israel saying you're too close to Palestine. Is that yeah. not the medium, the but, medium but, but position? But that be. isn't like, that's just like a, you know, it's like a silly common sense idea that the answer is always in the middle. You know, the answer is not always in the middle. Sometimes yeah. there's a right and a wrong. Um, and in the case of the Israeli oppression of the Palestinian people, we, we think there is very clearly a right and a wrong. And that isn't to blame, you know, ordinary Israeli Jewish people, but the Israeli establishment in its treatment of Palestinian people is absolutely wrong. And the Irish state 
and position and actions should be clear on that. Paul Murphy, um, People Before Profit TD, thanks very much for joining us and me, Holahan. That's all we have for you on your politics podcast from RTE News. Join us again next week. We'll have more. Take care. <laughs>